Listen in to the forum at St. James Church. Okay, we need to get going. The hour has come, or rather the half hour has come. And because it's a holiday weekend, we have enough room at all the tables, although we have asked to be certain that next week we have extra tables. Um, but there is plenty of room for everyone here. So we're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to start with two table questions. Um, I want you to precede those table questions by making sure to introduce yourself to everyone at the table. We all like to think we know everyone, but we don't. So, uh, so everyone needs to introduce themselves to each other at their table. But here are the two questions that I want you to mull over once you've done that. The first is, which of the Beatitudes do you find most personally challenging? And then I want you to think about where in the history of Christendom, okay, so I'm giving you over 2,000 years. <laughs> Who in the history of Christendom do you think has best embodied them? or come closest to embodying the Beatitudes. And I'm gonna give you till about 20 of, because I think you're gonna need eight minutes to talk about those two things. So introduce yourselves, talk about that. Which one is most challenging to you? Who do you think over the span of history? Okay, we need to gather back together as a larger group. I don't know if any of your tables had consensus about the most challenging beatitude, but I'd love to hear what some of you thought was the most challenging. They were all challenging, I'm hearing that. Yeah, okay, got that. Ed. One of the things, you know, we were talking about it was blessed are the meek, mm -hmm. and how in a way that was kind of a hopeful message for the powerless, but at the same time, the way we currently interpret meek is like, are you being courageous? Are you speaking out? And maybe that conflicts a little bit with those who, who um, strive for righteousness for justice's sake, you know. Okay, so they may not cohere in the same person, that if, if we interpret the meek as powerless, then it's good news, but if in fact we interpret meek as people who are afraid to speak up for what's right, then that feels very different. And so maybe there are people who are meek and people who are working for righteousness, who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, um, but not the same people perhaps. Other thoughts where you felt particularly challenged? Sarah. Um, our table did have consensus that we had a real problem around being blessed when people revile you and persecute you. Um, that, that those things might happen and you might have to withstand them, but that shouldn't be something you, you crave or seek after. Ah. Complicated Right. That being reviled and persecuted doesn't feel like a blessing, certainly not, but also that it's not something you should seek after. And that gets to an interesting question. Are the blessings something that you seek or something that simply is in that situation? Yeah, complicated stuff. Okay. Bob. Mine was a personal, I'm pure in heart and not seeing God, and I know that a lot of times I'm struggling with what I feel like <coughs> I'm pure in heart, and I really don't feel like I'm close to God at that yep. point. Purity in heart. 
We are a distracted bunch. It is hard for us to stay focused. Others. Richard. We just had a quick question as to what meek means. Everybody always does. <laughs> we'll get to what meek might mean. So. We didn't have a consensus at our table, but I personally don't understand poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Okay. What does poor in spirit mean? Anyone have a quick response to that they'd like to share? Depressed. Depressed. Okay. I don't think so. But poor in spirit feels like it's in a different realm than sort of the mental issue of depression. Liz and then Jenny. Have your faith only on the outside? Huh, to be poor in spirit is... Just like a shell. Huh. Not inside. So you don't have an internal faith that you're poor in your interior spirit. That's interesting. Jenny? I, I would think it's um, lacking the ability to find joy in things, to not feel connected to other people. To okay, which actually ties into what Ken said, a kind of depression, a kind of, you know, not being connected. Yep, okay. So I'm going to move to the next question because I think that will help work on some of these challenges. Okay, in the last 2,000 years, who's kind of gotten there or gotten close? When you think historically, who has actually felt like they have embodied these Beatitudes, or at least come close by embodying several of them. Wendy? I would um, nominate Desmond Tutu. Okay. Oh, we have a, <laughs> dang, Desmond Tutu is being nominated, and delightfully, we have lots of experience with him actually within this parish. And for someone who has dealt with a lot of persecution and yet been full of joy, yeah, absolutely. Mother Teresa, even though she went through a period of doubt. Mm -hmm. Mother Teresa, despite a long period of doubt and one would say depression in her own life. I think St. Francis. St. Yes. Francis comes pretty close. He renounced all that he had, which was quite a lot, um, and lived by begging and yet seemed to be someone full of joy who clearly experienced himself as being blessed. Juicy and then Diane. Uh, closer to us, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, that there were pieces of this. I would suggest even in terms of the meekness, which is in part about turning the other cheek in response to people coming at you, um, which he did, Diane. Okay, historically way back, Noah. Noah. Mm -hmm. Noah was certainly obedient. To build a boat. And he kept going. And everything. And he was ostracized from society. Cool. He went ahead. He paid attention to the Lord. He brought in all the animals and people and continued civilization. I like that. I think we need to keep Noah in the building of the ark and the ark phase. The post <laughs> phase is not so great for Noah, but you're right about that phase. Absolutely. Yes. Gandhi, tell me your name. I'm blanking out. Great. Thank you. So that was Gandhi. And why Gandhi? Uh, because he always tried to do peace without violence. Peace without violence. Again, someone who embodies a kind of meekness. Talbot, then Sarah, and then I'm going to say a few things. So I'm going to 
go a different route, which is I think the interesting thing for me about the Beatitudes is often about things that we can't see or that we are not experiencing that other people are going through. And so in some ways, I think we're all struggling to embody the Beatitudes and people who we may not see who are doing things behind the scenes might be those who are most embodying the idea mm-hmm. because they're internal and, and not intended to be just something that gets trumpeted all the time. Yeah, they may not be the bold-faced names, although it's certainly true that for Gandhi and for Archbishop Tutu and for others, they did not start by being bold-faced names. Um, part of what I love about our own history with Archbishop Tutu is that um, I like to say we knew him before he was Desmond Tutu, which is to say he, went, he was a bishop in Lesotho when we first connected with him as a parish. Sarah, Terry, and then, really, because I need to add a few things. I would say Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. What an interesting idea. Yeah. Just for somebody who, given a lot of choices in his life, made the choices he thought was right, though he sure got reviled and persecuted for a lot of time. Yep, Jimmy Carter. We had a lot of choices he thought were right and paid the the price of those. And and I I got to know Bishop Bull and Dolly from Southern Sudan, Uh who... He tells so many stories where he is, uh, he is, has Christ right next to him when he's when he is in a very difficult situation, like before a firing squad. Yeah, including praying for his enemies right before they were going to shoot him. Uh, Bishop Bulandali of Southern Sudan, absolutely. So there are folks out there, but we all feel pretty challenged, and all of us know, you know, Mother Teresa, who also struggled with depression. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. had other issues in terms of how he lived out his personal life. Um, We can always find ways to sort of pick. So the first thing that I want to say is that I'm focusing on the Beatitudes, but we need to remember that the Sermon on the Mount actually covers multiple chapters. Who is Jesus talking to in the Sermon on the Mount? He's talking to the disciples. He's seen the crowds, he goes up to the mountains, the disciples follow along. Um, Dick and Joan, we have seats over here if you would like them. Hello, we have a couple seats at this table here. You're welcome to stay there, but we also have seats here. So he was talking specifically to his disciples, but as you move to the end of it, as you move through the chapters, you also hear that the crowd was amazed. So it would seem that he's actually addressing his disciples quite specifically. But as is always true with someone who's becoming kind of a big deal, people are listening in. And so they're not the only people who hear them. It's not a little group of 12 um, that are right there. So primarily talking to the disciples, but others listening in. And as it goes on, it has... It has passages about not being anxious. It has passages about being salt and light, that you need to be salt for the world and that you cannot hide your light under a bushel. Um, So it has a number of other things. But I think the Beatitudes is where most of us find ourselves going, "Ah, I'm not going to be able to do this. So I want to share with you... um, Um, I used a great resource for this. I will tell you that the Sermon on the Mount has not ever been my favorite passage of scripture. So when I was assigned this, I went, really? 
really? I have to do that? Um, so my good colleagues gave me some resources, and one of them is a book in a, in a series of commentaries. They're theological commentaries. I'm saying this largely for George Wade, who loves to sit around and read theology, and also for Booker, who likes to sit around and read theology. It's a book by Stanley Hauerwas in a commentary series on Matthew. And he writes about this passage, has a lot of reflection actually that goes back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, one of the saints of the 20th century uh, during World War II. And what he says, which finally helped me make sense of this, and what I think I was hearing over at this table, is actually the only one who really fulfills this entirely is Jesus. It's Jesus who fulfills the Beatitudes. Now, that does not mean, oh great, he's talking about how amazing he is and is going to be and we're all gonna fail. That is not what that's about. What did Ryan say? For those of you who are at 910, I know many of you weren't. What did Ryan say about what it means to be a disciple in the time when Jesus and John had disciples around them? It's actually hugely helpful for this conversation. You immerse yourself in the life, and why do you do that? To help them. To, 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 pattern, to, to, to learn how they engage with life, to pattern after their life. Right, to take on the attributes of the teacher. So it's not the thing where you go to a teacher to learn some things and then go out and employ them in your regular world or to spout back to the teacher, oh yeah, I remembered what you said and here it is. It's not that kind of teaching, it's, a, it's an immersion. So when the disciples say, where are you staying? That's actually them saying, we wanna come be with you um, and to stay with Jesus, which is what all of his disciples did. They left everything and journeyed with him. It's not to learn, it's to become. It's to become ever more like him. So the point that Hauerwas makes, which I think is quite um, fabulous, is that this is not meant to be a checklist for followers of Jesus. This is meant to become a description of the community of Jesus, of the community that is gathered in Jesus' name. So the truth is that in any one community, you are unlikely to find everyone who embodies all of this. But if you are really being the community of Christ, if you are really being what we would now call the church, all of those people should be found there. And part of what made the first church so startling to the world before it became you know, was adopted by Constantine with all kinds of consequences, most of them not helpful. Before that happened, people were amazed because of who was in the community. Because in fact, it was Gentiles and Jews, it was rich people and poor people, it was powerful people and powerless people. It was the mix of who was there, it was Romans and Palestinians. It was everybody there, and together, that felt like a completely new kind of community. And that's what the Christian church is meant to be, a visible community that does not, in fact, look like the culture in which it sits, though it will draw people from that culture. But it draws them in, not so, oh, 
this is kind of a nice group of folks and I can replicate what I do there, but with this little select group who happen to believe this particular thing. But instead, a community I choose because it doesn't mimic the culture around us. And that, it seems to me, is a continuing, ongoing challenge um, for the church since about the time of Constantine. Um, one of the things I've always said to my friends um, in England, though we are hardly um, innocent in this regard, but the Church of England is officially a state church. You know, when you become a priest, you swear an oath. And by the way, in the Beatitudes, we're not supposed to swear any oaths. I would just mention that. Um, <laughs> but you swear an oath not only to the church, but to the queen. That's the state. Um, that's a very different model for the church than it was originally intended to be. And I think it's fair to say, um, picking up on Sarah's point about blessing, that all of the disciples, following Judas, who decided to step back into the culture, right? I don't like what this is looking like. I don't like where this is going. I think maybe he's wrong about this and we should go along and get along. Except for Judas, every one of those disciples was reviled and persecuted for righteousness sake. And yet we now, and I don't think they enjoyed it at the time, I don't think they felt blessed, but we now think of them as blessed because they were able to hold that integrity. And when we talk about meekness, Richard, the model that we have for that, which we don't think of, we tend to go immediately to our own situation, is Jesus, who did both things that I'd talked about. Because he hungered and thirsted for righteousness, he spoke up and spoke against the Pharisees and the religious leader. He was incredibly challenging. But when it came to his arrest, he was meek, like a lamb who is led to the slaughter is dumb. It's Jesus who actually embodies that. It's Jesus who embodies, as it goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, about loving your enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. None of us are ever going to get all of these. All of us are asked to think about where we might, in fact, be called to grow in our faith. But even more, I think what's really important is that we look around who we are as a community, who it is that we invite in, how it is that we respond to people who don't necessarily fit our assumptions about what a good Christian looks like, um, and make sure that we are including all those who want to be following Jesus, and not just those who fit well with what we're comfortable with because that's the community that Jesus created. And it was built on the model that he showed them. What I also love about this is that this falls really early in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel has 28 chapters. The Beatitude starts in chapters five and six, and then goes on to seven and a bit into eight. It's early days. so. The good news is um, that I imagine the disciples hearing this, and not just the crowd, were amazed. I expect they were also scared. Three cheers for the disciples who didn't abandon the ship at that point, uh, but who decided to keep going. So they also 
all had to grow into their discipleship. And for most of them, um, maybe the beloved disciple is the exception, but for most of them, they didn't actually find themselves able to live into this until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Because that's when they finally understood that being meek, that mourning over Jerusalem. Remember Jesus is the one who mourns over Jerusalem? Um, they shall be comforted. And they were all in mourning after his death. It was only in light of the resurrection that they saw that the world as it is is not the reality that God intends. And one of the great things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer also said, which I really like, um, is that if you act in accord with Christ, what you need to hold on to is that despite everything you see around you, you are actually acting in accord with the true reality. Because the true reality is what we see in Christ and not what the fallen world um, has created. So now I'm going to leave you with a very funny story, which for all of you who have gone to the Holy Land, um, you know, and for those of you who haven't but hope to, don't listen to me, which is that uh, Matthew's is the gospel that talks about Jesus going up the mountain. Matthew is also the gospel that talks about the Sea of Galilee. Those of you who have been there know that, of course, the Sea of Galilee is not a sea, it's a lake. And our guide always says that Matthew thought that was an ocean, and he thinks that hill is a mountain. Because where they think uh, Jesus actually proclaimed the Beatitudes is actually a hill up above the Sea of Galilee. However, the acoustics are amazing. So he could have talked to a lot of folks, which those of us who go get to discover when we're there. But so please think about the Sermon on the Mount, both the Beatitudes and what follows, as guidelines for us as a community um, so that we continue to understand we are not meant to be absorbed into or by the culture, which is the um, unhelpful gift that we got from Constantine. Thank you. I have to go to a church service. <laughs> to learn more about St. James Church, visit stjames.org. That's stjames.org.